You are listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Seminar, brought to you weekly by Stanford Technology Ventures Program at Stanford University School of Engineering. As usual, you can read all about Janice's bio. Uh, she's the founder and, and CEO of uh, Adaptive Path, which I hope we hear a good bit about because uh, it's a terrific company and um, it's just great to have another entrepreneur here uh, to share their wisdom. So let's welcome Janice to Stanford. Well, I have to tell you that I am actually really pleased to be here. Um, not only is it an honor to be invited, the other speakers that you've got this quarter are just incredible. So I am also envious of you that you have a chance to, so early in your careers, um, get this kind of wisdom. I wasn't fortunate enough to really be introduced to the Silicon Valley kind of phenomenon until I was uh, many years into my career. So, um, so cool. And I think that perhaps I'll be um, coming down to hear some of the other speakers later on this, this quarter. Um, I'm going to uh, talk for about probably 20, 25 minutes um, so that we can move on to the Q&A because probably that's really where the value is going to be for you. Um, I haven't prepared a lot of slides, um, just some you know, quick words to uh, cue me about what I wanted to talk to you about. Um, so let's get right into it. Um, the first thing I want to talk about is partnerships. Um, and I don't mean partnerships like my company and your company are going to do business together. Um, I want to tell a little bit of my story using partners as a context. Um, I, my career started, I graduated from college in 1989, and I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. Like, I was, you know, whatever. I was a, a, a biotech major, right? I was a, a biology major with this emphasis in the cellular physiology, but I hated the work. I got a great internship, really prestigious internship, went to the lab, spent some time doing the work, and went, holy cow, I can't stand this. This is the most, like, I want to shoot myself in the head. This is so boring. And um, so I was like, oh, boy, I'm a senior. What am I going to do? So I graduated with a degree in English because I thought, I can sell that to anybody, right? It's, I, I've got the credit to, you know, make it and to finish it. And, but when I got to the end of my college you know, career, my, and it was time to get a job, I had no idea what to do. Uh, so I went to work in a bank because, you know what, they really wanted me. They gave me a great deal. It was really, you know, I was like, fine, okay, this is structured work. I can get my head around it. Okay, I was a lousy banker. So one of the things we're going to talk about a little bit is failure. And let me tell you, when you close your drawer, when they're teaching you how to be a teller and you're $35,000 off for the night, that is not a success. So... Um, 14 months into that job, I went to the, you know, president of the bank, and I said, gosh, I have to quit. And he said, gosh, okay. Um, so I quit, and I uh, moved um, from the Midwest, where I was living, to the East Coast, uh, and ended up in this little tiny town where there was this very vigorous publishing, technology publishing company, and that was my entree into technology. Now, you have to understand that at this time, it was a really different technology picture than it is today, at least when you're in the woods in New Hampshire. So I went to work at a magazine called Run, which was for not runners, but for people who used Commodore 64 mag uh, uh, computers, which you could like, I don't know, it wasn't a laptop. You had to plug it into a television. Okay, this is a computer you had to plug into a television. So I was uh, a proofreader. Then I was an editor, then I was a senior editor, then I was the managing editor, not of run. At this point, I was um, moved to the West Coast 
uh, worked at a magazine um, in Foster City. It was a very large, very successful magazine. Um, and I thought, that's it. My career is set. I'm you know, in my mid-20s. I have a prestigious job with a prestigious publishing company. The, you know, my career is like, I am sailing. I've got it. I'm good at this. And then the internet happened. And a good friend of mine, a colleague from the publishing world, said, join me. Come to Netscape. He was the editor-in-chief. His name is Elliot Bergson. Um, he was the editor-in-chief of Netscape, of the, the website at Netscape. And this is um, about six months before the IPO. I had never seen the internet. I didn't know what the web was. I you know, said, I trust you. I'll go figure this out. Um, and I did. And it took a little while for us to actually make the deal happen, but I eventually quit my job in publishing and went to work on the Netscape website as their senior editor. And I don't think I edited a single word of copy the entire time I was there. I discovered an entirely new kind of work. It redefined my career. So I've taken this zigs and zags, right? And the thing that made it work is that I trusted Elliot, right? So here we get back to this idea of partners. Although Elliot and I didn't start a business together, I would start a business with him tomorrow. And I would start that business with him because I trust him. We have shared values. We have similar passions. Um, I know that when the going gets rough, he's somebody that I would absolutely be able to work through that trouble with. Right. So the first thing I want to share with you first real lesson that I can share with you from my career is that you have to choose your partners based on who you want to go through the rough times with. Because I'll tell you, every single entrepreneurial venture, whether it's very successful or a dismal failure, will go through rough times. You're going to have to make really difficult decisions. Every day, you're going to have to wake up and decide what to spend money on, or more importantly, what not to spend money on. You're going to have to decide which of the 10 ideas you have is the one you're going to do. And you're going to argue about that, at least if it's good, if there's potential. You're going to have really hardcore, meaningful arguments every day. So the most important foundation piece for any business that you want to start uh, is having a solid partnership. So fast forward through you know, the dot-com boom, the dot-com bust, etc. cetera. Um, in 2001, I had left Netscape started and closed or somehow transacted um, three other kinds of companies. And one of my colleagues in the user experience design field came to me, his name is Peter Mayerholtz, and said, I have this idea. I have, my idea is called the Loose Consulting Group. So why don't we get seven of us together? We've all been through the boom and the bust. And well, the bust was just really hitting you know, the big time, really busting out. Um, you know, We've all chased the brass ring. Let's just step off the money train and um, make a company that's going to make us happy. So there are seven of us. We all pretty much do the same thing, but we come at it from different angles. I think this could be really cool. We'll just share some accounting services. And I thought, hey, that sounds great. You know, Peter's good at things I'm not good at. You know, everybody knows his name. At the time, he was a very famous, had a very famous weblog. He was the, he's actually the guy who coined the term weblog or blog, blog. So he's cited in the OED as the person who came up with the word blog. And um, I had known Peter for many years. I didn't know the other people that he joined, uh, that, that he brought into the venture. But I knew Peter, and I trusted Peter. So I took it seriously. 
And together, Peter and the people that he put kind of around the table, we were something special. You could tell every time we sat down to meet to talk about this possible new company that there was gel. We argued meaningfully. We debated decisions. It took forever to decide what to call the company. But really, it was the solid partnership that formed in those first probably six or eight weeks that made Adaptive Path succeed. And it succeeded from day one. So I attribute 100% the, the success of Adaptive Path to the solidity of those seven people. And seven is a lot of partners. I'm not telling you to get seven partners. That was a pain in the butt. Um, but the solidity of that group of people is what made the company work. We've spent five years now, we're five years old, we've spent five years kind of documenting what it is that we have so that we can make sure that it keeps going. But it's the solidity of that partnership that makes the company work. Um, so the next idea that goes into this story is failure. Uh, along the way, I'll tell you kind of in the theme of partnerships, I'll tell you about one of my failures. I used to say that by dot-com standards, this particular company that I'm about to talk about was a tremendous success because it was eventually sold. And it was sold to a $4 billion publicly traded company with a celebrity CEO. And so I thought, woohoo, that's great. I, you know, I got an exit, and that's, what it, you know, that's all that matters. And you know what? I now consider that to be probably the top two or three biggest failures of my career. It was a bad decision. I wish in retrospect, and this is really you know, several years of hindsight now, I wish in retrospect that I had just closed the company. I sold it to the wrong people. Right? So basically, by selling my idea, my company, to the wrong people, I was engaging in partnership to create a new startup company. Right? It was a kind of spin-off of this very large company who, who I am not allowed to talk about because there's a contract that I signed that I said I wouldn't talk about. Uh, I sold it to the wrong people, and they were not the people that I needed to be doing business with. Ultimately, we found out that we had different ideas about what right and wrong is. We were not able to see eye to eye even when we were disagreeing. We couldn't disagree purposefully or respectfully. Right? So I kind of signed on to indentured servitude for a while. And no amount of money is worth the amount of time I wasted doing something that had no value, that had no meaning. Right? So I wish that I had just closed up the first idea, came up with another idea, and made that instead of signing on to somebody else's vision um, simply because I felt like I couldn't get funding for the first idea that I had. Okay? So what's nice about this experience is that from that failure, I know so much about the successes that I have. So it's been the failures that have informed the successes. Okay? So failure and success kind of are all part of um, having this way of life. And being an entrepreneur is not a job. It's a way of life. It's, it's a mission more than it is a, a job, right? I'm not employed by a company. I've never been employed by a company. Not since I quit Netscape in 1997. I'm employed by an industry. I'm employed by uh, an ecosystem of people who believe in me and who support me and whom I support in turn, right? So there's this real semi-permeable membrane, right, between my company and the ecosystem that we exist in. And it's that ecosystem that helps us to be successful. And when I'm done with this job, 
with this company and it's time to do the next company. It'll be that same ecosystem that I'm participating in in a meaningful way that will help me to have my next set of opportunities. So once you have a company off the ground, it's not failing, it's actually succeeding. You have to start thinking about culture. Um, I'm going to give a couple of book references um, at the end of these bullet points. And uh, one of them talks a lot about how to get from the infancy stage, where you need constant infusions of cash and energy to keep the thing alive, right, to keep it from dying. Right? You then mature into kind of this adolescent company where you have to start codifying what it is that you have in order to protect it. Right? So I would say that Adaptive Path is coming out of that adolescence right now. We spent the last 12 to 18 months literally documenting what makes Adaptive Path work, what makes it special. Um, how do we hire people? What kind of people do we hire? Well, we start with what are the values of the company? Think, make, collaborate, grow. That's everybody at my company in some way or other, if you said, what is this company about? What does this do for you? What does this do for the world? They would come up with some version of that. Now, not because I've taught it to them, not because it's printed on our keychains, not because of any of that, but because they all believe that. That's what they're there for. We select people who want that. These are people who love ideas, who love thinking, who love debating thoughts. Um, they like to make things. If it's all just talk, you get frustrated and bored, and you have to make something and deliver it and get it out the door, right? So think, make, collaborate. We're in this together, right? We're in this because being together makes me stronger, makes you stronger. It's more fun that way. Let's open our brains and throw our ideas on the table and see what happens, right? Think, make, collaborate, grow. Ultimately, at the end of the day, because we've come together, we have more fun, our work is more valuable, we want to keep doing it, it gets us up in the morning, we're growing, right? I'm a better person for having engaged in this company, Adaptive Path, than I was five years ago. And I'm a better person specifically because of this company, right? I'm also a better professional. I'm a better leader. I'm a better designer, right? So think, make, collaborate, grow. Every person in my company shares those values. We recruit and we filter our recruits based on that value statement. And we have literally a set of probably 40 criteria that we evaluate for. Now, everyone's not going to have every one of those criteria. But we know explicitly coming in the door uh, tolerance for ambiguity, for instance, is one of our kind of defining criteria. If someone has trouble, we're a dynamic company, if someone has trouble with things that are a little bit unstable now and then, they're not going to enjoy being an adaptive path because we're always trying something new. We're, we're a very entrepreneurial company. So we have a guy. He's incredibly successful at the company, but we knew coming in that he was not going to be comfortable with that kind of ambiguity. He likes structure. So before we... Uh, hired him, when we gave him his job offer, I said, you know, I know that you are not comfortable when things aren't really clearly defined. This company is a company where things are not clearly defined most of the time. So we need to know that that's going to cause you some discomfort. Are you okay with that? And he's like, I'm okay with that. I, it's just something we're going to have to cope with. He said, are you okay with that? And I said, yes, I'm okay with that. And now we know, occasionally, things get a little bumpy for him because he's uncomfortable, and we talk about it, and it's fine. So it's not that we want every one of our people to be exactly like every other one of our people. It's that now we know what we're hiring for and why and what the impact of deviating from that will be. Right? So all of that is designed to protect our culture. I think of culture as um, software. It's software for my company. It's the operating system for my company. Right? If I put certain things into that operating system as a, a sort of self-fulfilling system, other, you know, like, like something predictable will come out the other side. 
There are economic forces here. If you incense people, if you create incentive systems, uh, compensation systems that encourage certain behaviors, you know what? People are going to focus on those behaviors, right? So uh, the culture, protecting the culture and caring for the culture and being very conscious about the culture of your company is really important in getting from that infancy stage past the adolescent, the awkward adolescent stage. Um, Meaning, I talked uh, during the partnership bit about what does it mean for us. Adaptive path is really about meaning. Every company, I think every startup company has meaning. I actually borrowed this word from Guy Kawasaki in his book, uh, The Art of the Start, Make Meaning. And um, I think that he's right on, and I recommend that you read that book. I think it's a great book for entrepreneurs. But I think of this a little bit um, differently. There's a little more to it for me. You need to create meaning not just in the world, which is what Guy Kawasaki talks about. You have to create meaning in the world. You also have to create meaning for the people who are making this entrepreneurial venture go, right? Because it takes tremendous effort to get a new venture off the ground. You have to be 100% passionate about it. You have to really, you have to keep your feet on the ground and be rational, but at the same time, you have to kind of live this dual life where you're also just zealously pursuing this this possibility. It takes a lot of effort. So at the same time that we're creating meaning for the world, this is a product that is meaningful, we're creating meaning for the people who are putting their identity on the line to create this new thing, right? An example of this is a product that Adaptive Path has created this year called MeasureMap. MeasureMap is um, a statistics tool for weblogs. Right? It reinvents the category of uh, analytic software, actually. Um, I won't go into a lot of detail because we don't have a lot of time. But what's interesting about MeasureMap is not just that the people who are using it in the, there's a private beta program. The people who are using it in this private beta program are in love with it. They're addicted to it. Oh, Malik said it was like, you know, what the Apple did for computers, MeasureMap is doing for analytics. Like, woohoo! But at the same time, it's also creating meaning for Jeffrey Veen, who is the, the, essentially the product manager, the director of product uh, development, whose baby this is, right? So we essentially invested in his new venture, um, kind of incubated it, and he's taking it out um, as his own company. And it has created so much meaning in his life. He really believes in this stuff. And it was that passion, that meaning for him, that he's helping individual people make their blogs healthier. He's uh, helping them to understand the nature of participation in this new Web 2.0 world. Right? It's that connection that made that venture go. Right? It's that connection that gave him the vision and the, the personal power and the stamina, frankly, to get that fledgling kind of out of the nest, okay? So meaning. Um, Stinginess. Uh, Here I would say two kinds of stinginess. One is financial. You're not going to have a company unless you keep your money, right? We argued for six months at Adaptive Path over whether to buy a printer, our very first printer, right? We went for a year without an office. We went for another year with an office that was, I don't know, this big, big enough for a conference room that seven people could sit around, Right? I mean, we're a consulting company. People expect like bells and whistles and fancy stuff and all of that. And we didn't even own a printer or a fax machine or a conference table. We were stingy. And you know what? As a result of that, we weathered some really rough economic times when all of our competitors were laying people off. We were growing 30% year over year. Right? We've never had a down quarter, not once. Our first quarter was profitable. You know why? Zero overhead. 
And we paid ourselves well. You know? Um, so that stinginess uh, financially, I, I can't overstate the value of that. Uh, it's also important to spend money on the right things. So one of the nice things about having partners is that you say you have to justify it. So we did spend money, but we spent money where it really had value. We spent money flying people to our client sites for a sales meeting because sitting face-to-face -face and talking um, helped us to land engagements that we shouldn't have. You know, we, we were not even a company, and we had the redesign of NPR.com. We weren't even a company, and we got to redesign the navigation of Intel's website. You know, we weren't even a company, and we had a quarter of a million dollar engagement with PeopleSoft that led to a four-year run as their agency of record. Like, that's not supposed to happen, right? And that's because we decided to spend money in the right place, not on the things that looked cool. We spent money um, seeing our customers, taking care of the business fundamentals, um, hiring good advisors. We had a great accountant, right? Those are the important things. There's another kind of stinginess I want to talk about um, just for a moment, and that's feature stinginess. Uh, there's this Web 2.0 phenomenon. I'm sure many of you have heard about this. Um, one of the characteristics of Web 2.0 is feature stinginess. So it used to be that all software had to be feature rich. Now I think there's this, this pendulum is swinging. Companies like 37 Signals are making it really popular to be feature stingy, right? Justify every expense. Every feature you put in your product is going to cost you money. Because you've got to design it, you've got to think about it, you've got to build it, it's engineering overhead, right? Why should that be there? If it's not helping the people on the other end, then it doesn't earn its place in your product. So think about products and feature stinginess in your products. I think it's a really interesting concept, and I think you'll hear a lot of talk around this idea in the next couple of years. Uh, decision making. Um, there is a special issue of uh, the Harvard Business Review this month or last month that is really great. It collects all of their writings, all of their publishing uh, stuff on uh, decision-making and effective decision-making. And I think that efficiency of decision-making and effective decision-making is really, really important to any management, any leadership position. If you're going to be a leader in your company, you need to know how to create effective decision-making structures in your organization. Um, we actually have an organizational consultant that we've been working with for four years now um, who has helped us to align responsibility, accountability, and authority. So if I make you responsible for something, I need to give you the authority to deliver on that. Right? And if, I, if you're going to have authority and responsibility, I need to hold you accountable. Right? So this is kind of a three-legged stool, and you need to make sure that those three things are aligned. And when you get those three things in alignment, you have a much more efficient decision-making structure kind of by default. So align uh, responsibility, accountability, and authority. Okay. Um, alignment is an important word. I use this word a lot uh, in working with the management team of Adaptive Path. We use it kind of across the board. It's sort of an underlying principle to everything we do. Do our outsides match our insides? Are we aligning our brand to our reality? Are we aligning our um, decision-making um, to the real kind of economic needs of the business, right? Or do we have an efficiency there? Is that aligned? Um, we want to make sure that every, like, so there's, there's the saying, all the oars rowing in the same direction. For me, that all comes down to alignment. So we look for alignment in everything that we do. 
because when you have alignment, you have the sense of integrity, right? So I'm hiring for the right things because I, I know what the values are, so I'm hiring for the right characteristics in my people. So my, my people are going to deliver exactly the products that we want because those products are completely in alignment with that value statement, with that vision we have for the company, right? So we're going to bring the right customers in because we know that our product vision, our, our people who are aligned, are going to create a product vision that is aligned. So they're going to bring in customers that are aligned. So the whole thing runs much more smoothly because everything is working in concert with one another. So it's not that you don't, in that kind of environment, you still have conflict, but the conflict is meaningful and purposeful and helping everybody to advance toward those values and those goals, um, whether they're financial goals or personal goals. Um, it, it all works much more smoothly, so alignment. And underlying all of this is people. Um, I've talked a lot about people. We are a company um, designed for human beings, right? Every company should be a company designed for human beings. If the work isn't fulfilling for the people who are there, they're not going to have any loyalty, right? Especially with entrepreneurial ventures, you need to create an environment. They're giving up a lot. Our people do not get paid market rate. Right? Adaptive Path does not pay top dollar. You're going to make more money if you go to IDEO. Right? But people stay with us because we create a much better quality of experience. Right? We know what's going to make this set of people perform incredibly well. So we're, we're an organization that is my job as the leader is to create an environment where people can excel. And I put my money where my mouth is there. My they evaluate me. I had a performance evaluation. I, uh, we're only a 22-person company. A dozen people contributed to my performance evaluation. Right? And they told me where I'm doing well and where I'm doing poorly. Where, where do I need to help them um, remove barriers so that they can perform more effectively in their jobs, so that they can have a more fulfilling, more creative, more um, execution-oriented experience at my company? And as a result of that commitment that I have to being a service leader, right, I lead by serving, um, they're returning that to me in, in terms of loyalty and in terms of incredible performance and stellar customer feedback. So we have, again, this respect, trust relationship. My employees are my partners, right? We're creating a partnership here that's really successful. So in terms of creating a company kind of We've talked a little bit about this, the seedling company, the very baby company, and the energy that that takes, and the adolescent company, and getting over that hump. And now we're at this prime stage. How can we operate in this prime stage forever? How can we create a sustainable, um, brilliant business? And if we want to have an exit, we want to have that exit be brilliant as well. Adaptive Path, I can say, is not planning for an exit. Um, Measure Map is. You know, Measure Map is going to do something great. And uh, so ultimately, all of that depends on the commitment and the effectiveness of the people in the organization. Um, so uh, just a few tips for you. Uh, there are a handful of books that I refer to again and again and again. I mean, there are tons of pop, you know, pop culture business books and you know, things. Um, some of these books are 10 years old or hard to get or out of print. Um, the first one, Corporate Life Cycles, I have to say has, you know, I've never read more than the first four chapters, I think. But I, I read those first four chapters a lot. And I refer to it a lot. 
Now, this book you have to pay 60 bucks to get on Amazon because it's out of print, and it is just a tremendously valuable book. It helped me so much uh, in creating uh, Adaptive Path as it is today. Um, the Art of the Start, I really like. Um, you know, it's a, it's a cute little book. You can read it in an hour. But when we were creating Measure Map, it really helped me to focus on the right things and to cut through some of the BS that, you know, you end up doing when you're writing business plans. Um, and writing business plans is not the same as starting a company. Um, the new conceptual selling um, is kind of a cheesy read, um, but it is full of great information. I have a sales trainer named Wanda Brown, and she, you know, she teaches people how to sell. But you know what? She's taught me everything I know about negotiation. And I've become a pretty good negotiator, it turns out. So uh, a lot of that content is in the new conceptual selling. I actually give it to all of the people that I think are going to be in uh, negotiating positions in the company. And I also send them to Wanda's class. Clue Train Manifesto, uh, you know, this book was in fashion for a long time. Then it fell out of fashion, and I think with the whole Web 2.0 thing, it's coming back in fashion. And I put the question out to those of you who are kind of interested in marketing at all. How do you manage a brand when uh, you're in this Web 2.0 kind of world where everyone is talking to everyone? The phrase, markets are conversations, um, kind of throws cold water on the concept of brand management. So if you're into, into, into marketing, that's one that you should read because it has renewed relevance today. Uh, and then, as I said, Harvard Business Review did this special issue on decision-making that I think is brilliant, and I'm making all my managers read it. So there you go. Uh, I ran about seven minutes longer than I wanted to. I'd like to um, take some questions now and uh, see what you guys are interested in. Uh, and please use the mic. So who wants to get started? Yes. Right, so the, the um, let me start with the term Ajax. So uh, we have no claim on the concept of Ajax. We have no claim on the technologies underlying Ajax. What we found was that in order to use this technology, this kind of suite of technology approaches, actually, we needed to be able to explain it to people who weren't technical. So we gave it a name, we put a couple diagrams around it, and we showed that to our client who we were trying to persuade. It was explicitly a persuasive tool. And it turned out it was a really good persuasive tool for a whole lot of people. Um, and uh, so Ajax is um, neat. It makes a lot of cool things possible. So the, the other thing that you mentioned is Ruby on Rails and how much are we investing in Ruby on Rails. i got to tell you, I love Ruby on Rails. Like, I'm not a technology person, but I know that it makes my um, technology people really, really happy, and they can do things really, really fast. And you know what? That makes me really, really happy. So um, we're not investing necessarily directly in Ruby on Rails, except that one of our employees uh, ha is one of the first four guys. He's actually a, uh, an undergrad up in Canada, um, and he uh, can you know, check in. He has check-in privileges to the core. I'm a CEO, not a technology person. Please pardon me if I butcher some of this stuff. Uh, 
And so he is, you know, he has always been, since before we were working with him, uh, been contributing to the Ruby on Rails um, core. So, I mean, the stuff that we're doing for MeasureMap is having a tremendous effect on Ruby on Rails, but I can't say that, you know, it's, it's 37 signals, not ours. So, yeah. Yep. Uh, you mentioned that you're not yourself a technical person. What has prepared you to manage a very technology-driven company? That's a great question. Um, so what has prepared me to manage a technology-driven company? Um, I have been in the high-tech field for, uh, I don't know, since 1990, so it's almost six, 16 years. I'm feeling old. Um, so I've been near technology a lot. I've listened to a lot of really smart technology people, and um, I, I have no shame in making people talk to me like I'm in kindergarten. So I honestly will be in a conference room and will stop a conversation and say, I don't understand that, and it seems like it's important. Could you please draw me some pictures and you know, explain that to me in layman's terms? And I try not to do that in a way that is disruptive, but I try to do that so that I understand what I need to understand to make appropriate decisions. So there's that. Another thing is that um, I believe that it is possible to lead people who are unlike you. And I believe that so strongly that I would say that it is mandatory that every manager be able to lead people who are unlike them. Otherwise, you don't have a company. A company that is full of technology people will have terrible bookkeeping. You know, A company that is full of technology people will not know how to talk about that technology. right? So I have to work with people who know things that are completely unlike the things that I know. And I do that every day. And we hire people explicitly for that reason. So I think that if you want to be a leader, if you want to be an entrepreneur and make code, that's brilliant. But if you want to be the entrepreneur that helps pull the whole thing together and kind of keep all these moving parts working in concert toward a shared common goal, you have to, um, you have to be able to kind of jump in and swim no matter what the conversation is. And um, that means having no no ego about what you know and don't know. You just know it or you don't know it, and you ask a lot of questions. So, yes? Uh, you mentioned that partnership is mm. Did you ever have a fear that your partner would fall away and that you would be able to find somebody uh, with the same uh, genuinity yeah. as that person? So, so the question is, um, partnership is so important. Have I ever worried that my partner would leave and leave a hole that I couldn't fill? Is that a fair restatement? Um, have I ever been afraid of that? What would I have done? I've never actually had that situation happen. I've had partners leave, and I've been glad that they left. Um, sometimes you just have, sometimes it just doesn't work out. And there, again, there's no shame in that. Like, you know, it works out, it doesn't work out. We're all, gonna ha we're all employed by the same industry. We're all going to have fabulous careers. Like, there's a lot of opportunity for everybody. Um, usually what I've found is that the right people go at the right time, and the right people stay. Uh, and perhaps I've just been really fortunate in that way. And that applies to not just partnerships. That also applies to my employees. I've never had a, the key employee, I've never had a really key employee quit on me, um, which I think is probably unusual. Um, I do sometimes fear it. So with MeasureMap, you know, Jeffrey Veen, who's one of the founding partners of Adaptive Path, 
he's going out and doing his own thing. I mean, there was a time a few years ago where Jeff and I were like, we were like never going to not work together. He's like, I want you to be president of every company I ever run. And now he's like, I want to be the CEO, right? And he's right. And our relationship, you know, we've had a tremendously successful partnership, um, sometimes at odds, sometimes completely in sync, uh, both contributing really well. And at this point, you know, he's got something else to do. And him going off to do that is going to make Adaptive Path stronger. It's going to make our you know, extended network um, richer. We're, now I'm going to have someone who has a different perspective but who still understands my company be able to give me the outside-in view and you know, enrich the whole thing that way. So I don't know how I'm going to replace him. At, at one point I thought, God, what if, what if Brian, our COO, goes with Jeff? Holy cow, what would I do? I have no idea. But you know what? I'd survive. I have a network of people who are really invested in my success and adaptive path success. I have a CEO friend who runs a actually competing company on the East Coast who several years ago decided that he cared about my success and adaptive path's success. He somehow saw a kindred spirit. And every time I'm in town where he is or he's in town where I am, he makes a point of going to breakfast with me, and he grills me. You know, what are you doing about cost accounting? You know, what's on your mind right now? Like, what, sh- what are you not paying attention to that you need to be paying attention to? And that kind of ecosystem, like having that network of people around me, means that if something happened, if something like, you know, if Brian, the COO, decided to leave, oh, my God, I don't know what I would do, except that I would pick up the phone and call my advisors and say, Holy cow, my CEO just left. What do I do? And someone would say, you know what? Call this recruiter. They're going to be able to get you a temp in, you know, blah, 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 blah. And because I have a positive relationship with Brian and because he's so important, he would make sure that we were cared for. He would make it okay. He would leave in a graceful way that wouldn't screw us. So I think that it's about taking kind of a long answer to a short question. I think it's about taking a long view and really... um, Developing a healthy ecosystem, a healthy environment, a healthy um, kind of matrix system in which to exist. Uh, so that idea that I'm not employed by a company, I'm employed by an industry. And I'm an active participant in that, and it is also an active participant in my life. Does that actually answer your question? No? <laughs> in the baby steps? If the, in the baby steps, if your partner wants to leave... You shouldn't be doing that business anyway, so you should be glad. Like, really, I believe that. Um, I wish, when I figured out that, you know, my, there was one business that I did where I was really in business with the wrong people. There were good people, there were fine people, but we were not a match. I wish that I had walked. I wish that one of them had walked. And if they had, we would have reassessed what we were doing and probably would have made better decisions. So I think that it's better to part ways early on um, than to um, stick with a bad partnership. And if one person's going to leave, it means they're not committed, so it would have been a bad partnership. Now, when that happens, you don't have to shut up, you know, or shut down the business and walk away. You can, um, you can regroup, right? Uh, one of the things that has helped Adaptive Path is that when we started the company, we wrote an operating agreement that had explicitly worked out what happens if somebody leaves, what happens if one of the seven founders leaves, because nothing is worse than having a 
eh, okay partnership that splits up because it should split up, and then having acrimony and having people sue each other. This happens all the time. It kills friendships. It destroys marriages. I mean, like, really, it's so ugly. So when Adaptive Path started, we made this operating agreement that said, if one of us should leave, here's what happens. Here's what happens to your equity position. You know, here's what happens you know, to your voting rights. Here's what happens kind of tick, 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 all, all the way down the line. And you know, we had a not stellar lawyer. We had a okay lawyer work it out. So it's a pretty good document. And we all signed it. And two years later, Mike Kuniavsky, one of the founders, left. I mean, it was just not a match for him. He wanted to go do interactive furniture or something. And, you know, he's the mad scientist guy, and that was the right thing for him to do. And because we had worked all of that out well in advance of there being any emotional connection to it, it was purely logical, kind of here's what it ought to be, like he knew how to leave well. So he left under great terms, and um, there was no – it made it easy for him to be um, a good guy. It made it easy for us to be good about it and – you know, we have a really happy, we're still friends, like we would do business together. Probably not partners, but we would do business together surely in other ways. So, yes. yes I wonder with your 16 years of experience in the technology field, <laughs> if you've seen a change in the technology field. I mean, could you put some words up the list like you did about entrepreneurialism and reflect on what it takes for starting a business or what people getting into the technology business today is like compared to what it was 16 or so years ago, particularly seeing how different it was when Netscape started and what 2.0 now offers. Oh, my goodness. What a big question. All right. Um, how is it different? Well, I have to say, like, I feel like when I started out in technology, I didn't know anything. So, you know, thinking about what it was like in the early 90s, well, and it's so different. I, I started out proofreading typesetting codes, right? So actu- they were actually setting type, like little letters in a machine, and then you would print it. And I had to read those because there were codes that would tell it whether to make it italic or whatever. Like proofreading typesetting codes, it's like another generation, two generations ago. So I was part of the, the move to desktop publishing, Right? So nobody in my office had computers on their desks when I started. Like, it, it was, I don't know, it was just, it was such a long time ago. And I, I worked on a nine-inch screen, right? I did Quark, which was a desktop publishing application on a nine-inch screen in black and white, and we laid out a magazine that way. Like, it just, it was so different. Um, it's easier for me to compare now to the start of Netscape, and there are actually a lot of similarities right now. Um, the excitement that's happening now with some of the new ventures that are, that, that are coming up with you know, um, Flickr and Delicious and you know, Upcoming and all of these you know, people doing things because they can and because it's cool and easy and fun, like, that's where a lot of really good innovative stuff happens. So I see that as being very similar between 96 and today, 10 years later. Um, What's different is that the cost has come way down. Uh, Dave Hornick, who's a VC here in the Valley, um, recently wrote an essay, and I, I kind of think it was about MeasureMap. Um, he was bemoaning the fact that all these startups, all these kind of cool Web 2.0 startups, um, don't need venture capital right now. 
what used to take you know six million dollars in investment just to keep your you know servers going and you know get your development environment set up and all of this like now that is a f- it's a fraction of that. You can do a decent startup, you know, software startup, if, if you write the code yourself, you can do it for, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars. So that means instead of getting um, big venture money, you can do it with angel money. Like, that changes a lot. I think, I don't know, I'm not one for prognostications in industries that aren't mine, and I'm certainly no venture capital person, but I, I see that as being a pretty substantial change, that the cost to get into a software-based business or a web services business is so different now um, that you're going to see a lot more really cool little things started just because people wanted them. And that's neat. And, and I'm really curious to see where that's going to go. Um, I also feel like it's a lot more popular now. The dot-com boom did a lot of good things for you know, filling up classrooms like this, making people feel like it was possible and like it was accessible. It felt very inaccessible. Um, at least to me, 10 years ago, something other people did, um, people who had sort of secret handshakes that I didn't know about. And, um, you know, for all its folly, the dot-com boom made you kind of realize that people are just people, and if you have a good idea, you know, and you know a bunch of people who know how to get good ideas off the ground, then, you know, okay, you can have a company, right? And I think that that's more true today now than it's ever been. So I don't know how much of that is really going to, pan out, but that's my little, you know, finger to the wind right now. Yes. I can't, you're not, the microphone's not picking up, so. It's not working? So, passion? Yes. Okay. The question I had was, uh, you joined Peter Dupont's new venture. Um, how did you convince yourself that you're passionate How did I convince others to be passionate about this idea? Right. So, how did I convince myself that I was passionate about it? There was no work involved. Um, it was exactly the right opportunity for me. So I had been talking because I, I was ready to change jobs. I was working for a startup. Um, I was the vice president of web development for a startup that was really not going to go anywhere. Um, I really liked the CEO, but I just it wasn't right for me. So I knew that I was looking, and I had interviewed with, I don't know, half a dozen other startups, um, you know, all at kind of VP or, you know, higher kind of executive level positions. And none of them just really clicked, right? So it was about, the choice was about watching for the right opportunity with the right people in the right field. So I had been do, doing user-centered design for, you know, since I started at Netscape. And um, so to join with other people who are in my sweet spot, so the topic was my sweet spot, um, and then the people. Like, I sat down, truly, honestly, in the first meeting, like, sitting down with Peter and Jeff and Jesse, you know, and Lane. Like, these are perfect people for me to be in business with. So it, it was just, there was no decision to be made. I, I was, it was funny, I was, um, I was getting married uh, right during this transition. So Peter came to me with the idea for the company in late November of uh, 2000. I was getting married on New Year's Eve 2000, and I was quitting my job immediately. Like, that was my last day. It was right. So there was all this tra- transition and change, and I came home one night, and I told my then fiancé, I was like, I- I'm going to do this, okay? 
He's like, I'm going to get laid off because my dot-com is failing. Are you okay with doing a startup when we don't have any income? I was like, yeah, okay. Like, it just was so, he knew that I had been interviewing with all these companies, and he, he watched that. And to have someone that you love and who knows you so much just say, all right, if that's what you think is right, obviously it's got to be right. Like, and it just was. And, and that um, was reinforced. So there was about three months between the time that we started talking um, and we officially launched the, co- launched the company at South by Southwest on March 2nd, 2001, 321. And, you know, in those intervening, you know, two, three months, we got clients, you know, developed a brand identity. Like, it just was so clearly working that there was no question. Uh, there must be situations where you and partners have uh, very different ideas, opinions over certain issues, especially for certain partners in the beginning. So how to deal with uh, these kind of circumstances and who's going to make the final decision? Okay, so where our, the partners were disagreeing about the products to do, is that right? Yeah. Um, so uh, I'll tell you about how we handled MeasureMap. Um, so the first thing we did is we kept it really quiet. So this is you know, what some people call an intrapreneurial venture, right? So we have a going concern, an existing company um, that wants to do entrepreneurial ventures sort of as one kind of part, one, one piece of effort, right? And we needed to make an investment in that. So um, three guys, three of our, uh, two of the founders and one of our employees met off-site in the evenings and came up with a whole list, big list of ideas. Separately, they came up with a list of gating criteria. How will we know if this is the right venture for Adaptive Path? And this is, actually, I, I credit Lane Becker, one of, the, um, one of the guys, one of the founders of the company, um, with coming up with that piece of it. And I think that really was the magic. It had to be something that would catch on virally. He knew that he wanted it to go. It had to be something where we were redefining a category based on a user experience challenge because we are a user experience firm, right? So it had to be product innovation coming out of a design mindset, user-centered design mindset, right? So there were all of these gates. It had to have a, you know, solid revenue model. It had to have um, uh, relevance to our ecosystem, right? It had to kind of fit within our kind of network of people, right? So he had um, seven primary and then a handful of additional secondary gating criteria. And if it didn't meet all seven of those gating criteria, it wasn't an idea we could do. So they um, took those two lists, the list of gating criteria and the list of ideas, and you know, vetted them and threw out 95% of the ideas. And like three or four ideas came through. They came and pitched me on MeasureMap. I took that to the shareholders and to our management team, and, and we went from there. So it was, um, there was an emotional process to come up with the ideas, you know, really crazy creative, and there was a rational process. How will we know when we have the right one? So there was this kind of, there was a bit of distance uh, emotional distance that said, we're not going to get crazy about one idea. Um, it's going to be okay if we throw away a lot of ideas um, before we find the right one. And I've heard a lot of other entrepreneurs say similar kinds of things. There's a group um, that had done when.com, and they were a consulting company called ActiveSite, and then they started when.com, which was eventually acquired by AOL, and they did the same kind of thing, where they just kept consulting and consulting and consulting until they found the right product idea, but they threw away a lot of product ideas, even after a month or so of work. They were just willing to let go of them because they weren't right, because they trusted that eventually they would get the right one. And when they found the right one, they shut down the consulting business and devoted themselves entirely to developing when. So does that give you some context and framework? Okay. 
Um, so we're probably getting close. One last question. No? Oh, yes, one more. Um, as a leader, uh, how do you decide when consensus is good or when mm. dissension is good? Great question. Okay, how do I know when consensus is good or when dissent is good? Um, I'll say that I think dissent is always good um, as long as it's uh, purposeful, like as long as someone is not just being obstinate or, you know, attempting to sort of be destructive. Um, And in that case, I have a private conference with that person because that's just not cool. Um, uh, I, there's a a, a decision-making framework that I use. Um, There are delegated, there there are uh, uh, kind of autocratic decisions. I can make the decision myself. I can delegate the decision fully to somebody else, right? So it's your decision. You run with it. You don't need to consult me. Um, There's consultative decision-making where okay, it's your decision, but you have to talk to these five people and take their views into consideration and then make, you, make your decision. And then the, the, kind of, the next one is full consensus. We all have to agree. Um, and 95% of the time, I think consultative decision-making is the best practice. Um, I could be wrong. Organizational consultants might argue with me about that. But with my consulting work and with the adaptive path work, I find that consultative decision-making... If it's genuinely consultative, if I really do care what those five people think, then when I make my decision, they will feel included and informed, and they will feel like I'm genuinely taking their needs into account. Yeah? If you have a gut feeling about a decision, will you bypass everybody? If I have a gut feeling about a decision, will I bypass everybody? Never. So um, there was an article that the Harvard Business Review wrote, I don't know, three years ago about uh, first-time CEOs. And it actually is kind of hard. I'm I'm a first-time CEO. It's kind of hard because the first thing you have to realize is that you really have no power. Because if you ever wield the power that you have, you're going to shut down somebody, you're going to disempower them, and they will not produce for you, right? Your job is to lift them up and get the best out of them that they can give. So if you're constantly, you know, by executive fiat, you know, cutting them off at the knees, they're going to fail because they won't trust themselves, right? It just it creates this really terrible cultural phenomenon. So um, I do it by accident, and I feel really bad about it, and I undo it, right? I step on my people all the time because we're still figuring out what our roles are. I'm human. I make mistakes. I'm okay with that. You're human. You make mistakes. I'm okay with that too, right? So recently I did this. I had delegated PR to somebody, and... I kind of had forgotten the degree to which I had fully delegated that, and so I started doing some stuff. And he sent me an email and said, remember, we agreed this was going to be in my job description. So it's a change. I know it's a change. Please let me run with it. And I was like, you know what? You're right. I'm sorry. It's all yours. And I've let him run with it, and that was the right thing to do, and he's doing a great job. And because, because I acknowledged that he was right, and that I supported him in that thing that he really wanted and needed to do, he's now really taken, you know, taken charge of that, and he's doing a great job. So I had an opportunity to really kind of cut someone off and make him really unhappy, and instead we were able to turn it into something really positive because we have a good relationship. So, again, this is a cultural characteristic. Thank you, Jen. Mm-hmm.